Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you to our morning service and invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we are midway through the chapter this week, and in 1 Corinthians, Paul's been dealing with the problem of division in Corinth, and it's an ugly problem that keeps rearing its head over and over in the church. Uh, we, we've seen, in, since we've been studying 1 Corinthians, that they had divisions over their leaders. They preferred one um, preacher over another, one pastor over another. Uh, some were boasting about their favorite pastors. There were divisions about economics and, and lawsuits and among the believers. There was even division about food, uh, division about what's permissible and not permissible when it comes to something to eat. And in chapter 12, uh, Paul has been addressing the problem in relation to spiritual gifts. You see, at Corinth, uh, there, there were some who were claiming to be uh, that, that a really spiritual person uh, meant exercising certain spectacular and public spiritual gifts. And if you weren't gifted in one of those ways, well then, it must mean that you're, an, obviously, you're a lesser Christian, and it was causing division in the church. And, and so Paul appeals to the work of the Trinity, to the Trinity itself, the essence of the Trinity, who gives diverse gifts by the same Spirit and the same Lord and the same God, God himself. We looked at that last week. Remember that? Um, Paul taught that God is both diverse in the fellowship of the three persons and one in his fundamental unity. We can never understand it. We can just read about it and appreciate it, right? How do we understand that? And since this is what God is, and he's the gift giver, then the same way the church is richly diverse in gifts and ministries, and yet one in fellowship and mutual service. Isn't that wonderful? It is. And so this morning, we're going to look at how Paul continues to address the problem of division over spiritual gifts in Corinth. And now he's going to use a different image. The first image that we saw in the, the, the first verses last week, first half of the chapter, was the illustration of the Trinity. Today, we're going to notice that he uses the human body itself to talk about diversity and unity. So if you'll stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in verse number 12, says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, uh, by the way, I just love the personification of the body parts, don't you? Um, if the foot should say, 
because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let us pray. We thank you, dear Lord, for the blessings of the Word of God, understanding and knowing your Word and then uh, having it sink deep into our hearts uh, makes, makes us change, Lord, and makes us become more like you, uh, makes us appreciate who you are. And we thank you for that. Now, as we uh, study this passage today and hear the word uh, being uh, uh, preached, I ask that we will be changed and that we will uh, conform our minds to the, the scriptures and the teaching of scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. So here's the principle, ready? We are unified in one body. That's pretty simple, isn't it? For just as a body is one that has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now what I find interesting is that he says, so it is with Christ. He doesn't say so it is with the church. Because we are so closely identified with Christ he uses the word Christ. I'll get more into that in just a, a little bit. But to illustrate the interrelationship of the members of the Christ body, Paul uses the human body as an illustration. And the body is one of the most amazingly complex organisms on earth. I was a pre-med major for a while, and just looking at how all the parts work together is amazing. And then you start looking at how the organs work together is incredible. Then you start going down to how a singular organ works. And you finally get down to the cellular level. And the astounding complexity of, at the cellular level, you can study and study and study and just not learn at all. Our bodies are so incredibly complex Yet, I don't say, hey, Christy and all your cells and organs, how are you doing today? I just look at her and say, hey, Christy, how are you doing? And uh, that's, that's how, it, how it is. You cannot remove a part of the body and that part survive by itself, right? It's impossible. We're not like a plant where you cut the plant off and stick it in the ground the roots or stick it in a pot of water and the roots come out. We're not that way. If you 
remove a part, the body ceases some of its effectiveness, doesn't it? And so already we see two big spiritual principles regarding the body of Christ. Christ is called the head of the church. Now, humans control the head. I remember when I was in high school, there were a couple principles about the human head that I learned that was interesting. We had to wrestle in PE. I hated wrestling. If you loved wrestling, more power to you. I hated it. But one of the things that, probably because I weighed 145 pounds at this height, that might have something to do with it. But uh, one of the principles they taught us in wrestling is what? Wherever the head goes, the body goes, right? Uh, But my sport was basketball. And uh, we were taught, don't watch the head, watch the abdomen when you're regarding somebody because the head can fake, but your head's going to follow the body, the abdomen. And so anyway... Uh, You guys don't care about that kind of stuff. Where am I going with all this? Um, Christ is called the head of the church. In humans, the head controls the body. And if the head is defective, the body's defective. If the head is removed from the body, then then the, the body is no longer a body. What is it? It's a corpse. Now, that that sounds so uh, obvious, but realize that there are so-called churches out there, congregations, who have removed themselves from the head. You see that in the book of Revelation and in some of those churches there. And so the implication is this, and this is directly for everybody that's here, you cannot disconnect from the church and from Christ and have any spiritual life. Jesus said it a different way. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing, right? So the teaching of the New Testament is this. He is in his church and his church is in him. They're totally identified. The church is an organic whole. Now, I'm going to say this one more time. When I say the church, I'm not talking about Providence Bible Church. I'm talking about the church, right? The church is the living manifestation of Jesus Christ. That in itself is profound. We show Jesus Christ. So when we, the church, stay connected to Christ and connected to one another, we use our gifts And we show Christ. One commentator said this. He said, the church pulses with the eternal life of God. I like that phrase. We are pulsing with the eternal life of God. How how amazing is that to think of, that we we do that together. And so um, uh, we are unified as one body. But there's two truths about that unification that the Apostle Paul is teaching here that I want to show you, and that is this. In the same verse, he says this, for in one spirit we were all baptized in one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. So the first thing he says is this, the body is formed, the church body is formed by the Holy Spirit at our salvation. We were all baptized into one body. Now the body 
is formed as we're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And, and when he uses the term baptized in this verse, Paul is not speaking of water baptism. He's not talking about getting dunked back here. He's talking about baptism by the Holy Spirit. You know what he says? For in one spirit, we are all baptized. And so there are strands of, of Christian teaching, for lack of a better term, out there that would have you to believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second order blessing. That you get saved, and then at some other point, you get baptized by the Holy Spirit. But that simply is not the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Look at the verse again. Isn't it very clear? For in one spirit, we were all baptized. Past tense. Into the body. And so, to be a Christian at all is to have been um, baptized by Christ in the Spirit and so united with Him. So you must have the Spirit to be baptized by Christ and in the Spirit to be a Christian. So one Spirit baptism establishes the church. There, there are no partial Christians. Now, I'm not Christian uh, point two, you know, 0.26 or something. I'm, I'm moving along that scope. You're not a partial Christian. There's no partial members of Christ's body. We were all baptized into the body, and when he did that, you are a part of the body, and he is forming you into a part of the body. You, dear believer, have a very specific function in the body. There's no exception. Every single person who is in Christ is in his body, ordained for a specific purpose. So that's how the body is formed, but how is it nourished? How is it nourished? Well, if you look at the rest of the verse, he says, and all were made to drink of one spirit. All were made to drink of one spirit. We are in the spirit who is in us. Just as there's no partially saved Christians, there are no partially indwelt Christians. So every single person here who is a believer in Christ is just as indwelt by the Holy Spirit as I am or any other person that you know in the United States. We, we all have the same indwelling. We are in the Spirit who is in us. We are not partially saved. We're not partially indwelt. The Spirit is not parceled out to us in installments. Uh, the, John says that he gives the Spirit without measure. So like, like being baptized in the Spirit, being indwelt by the Spirit is virtually synonymous with conversion. Now it's an all-or-nothing proposition. It's all-or-nothing. Uh, for example, Romans 8-9 says this, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, now listen, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. If you don't have it, you, you're not in it. And the reason I'm hammering it so much is in worldwide, the fastest growing segment of Christianity says that the, you can be, have a fuller measure of the Spirit than other people. I'm going to explain that in just a minute. 
Uh, but uh, a person who does not have the Holy Spirit does not have eternal life because eternal life is life of the Spirit. You have the full spiritual life of God in you right now. How, how um, wonderful is that? So what does all this mean? It means that when we trust Christ, we are completely immersed by the Spirit and completely indwelt by Him. God, has, God literally has nothing more to put in us. We're done. He, he has put His very self into us, and that cannot be exceeded. What is lacking is our full obedience, our full trust, our full submission, not his full salvation indwelling or blessing. Did you catch that? That's a quote from one of the commentators I was reading this week. What is lacking is not the Holy Spirit. What is lacking is our full obedience, full trust, and full submission. And that distinguishes believers. It's not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These truths are given to the Corinthians and us by Paul in order to correct two wrong attitudes. And this is where we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the spiritual gifts. These two wrong attitudes um, are in verses 14 to 17. He deals with wrong thinking about ourselves. And in verses 21 to 26, he deals with wrong thinking about others. That's the two major sections that we just read today. And right in the middle, now follow with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you something, and some of you are going to be completely bored. Some of you might enjoy it. Um, but follow me, 14 to 17, wrong thinking about ourselves, 21 to 26, wrong thinking about others. But what about in the middle? Look at the middle of this passage. He spells out the glorious truth that each one of us is placed in the body by God's choice. Isn't that wonderful? Now, what is going on, I'm going to get into the weeds because I think this is beautiful. Some of you are going to appreciate this, but I'm going to show it to you because it will help you understand. What this structure is called from verses 15 to 24, it's called a chiasm. It's, that's the Greek name for the letter X. And this, anybody in, in Mediterranean air, uh, time, the Mediterranean realm would have understood the chiasm because their, their, their minds were... They work to spot him. I want to show you what I'm talking about. Here's the middle I was talking about, 18 to 20. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Okay? God arranges, God chooses, and then he says, and as it is, there are many parts at one body. That is the central truth that Paul's going to teach. But notice what's on either side. All are needed. So he says, God arranges everything, and then he emphasizes all are needed. If the body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Uh, down here, the eye cannot say, I have no need of you. So every person is needed. Follow the logic. God arranges, God chooses, we're one and many at the same time, therefore all are needed. And then on the outside, he breaks down the arguments, which is, I do not belong. If the foot should say to the hand, I do not belong to the body, you see? And his ending argument, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem weaker are indispensable. That's the whole idea of I am inferior. It's a beautiful structure. 
And uh, it's hard for us to pick it out because we have never been taught to view literature that way, but the Bible is literally full of these kind of structures. Okay, now I got that out of my system, and most of you are probably saying that was so boring, but it's a beautiful language construction here that I love. It's called a chasm. The correction for these wrong attitudes. If you have the attitude, you know what? My gift is so small, I just don't feel like I belong here. Or you feel like you compare yourself. You're looking at somebody else and saying, man, I've got the same gift that dude does, but man, he's got us in so much greater measure than I do. I feel inferior. The, the um, antidote to those two wrong behaviors is this. God arranged the members of the body, each one as he chose. Isn't that a wonderful blessing? If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is that there are many parts and yet one body. In other words, you may think you're inferior. I tell you what, stub your pinky toe. Tell me that little digit doesn't matter for the rest of your body. See what I'm saying? All of us are important, and that's a wonderful truth, and that's what Paul is trying to drive home. And so God is concerned with the, the health of the entire body. And since he created this body and called its various members to faith in a son, it is God who determines which of the Corinthians are the hands, which of the Corinthians are the feet, which of them are the eyes, which of them are the ears. God did this, Paul says. And he did it as he wills, according to his purpose. Every member of the church and every gift which God gives these members are important to the well-being of the whole. We... You have been called by God and given specific gifts for the well-being of the body. Are you exercising your gifts? Now, questioning our spiritual gifts is questioning God. I'm going to say something here. Please think. This is an implication. This is implied truth. I'm going to say it. Just very directly, just think about this. Ready? Not using our spiritual gifts then is disobeying God by implication. Think about Romans 9. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use, God has a supreme right not only to give our specific spiritual gift, but to expect obedience out of us in the use of that spiritual gift. A Christian who does not have a ministry is a contradiction. He's disobedient and is denying God the right to use him in the way in which God intends and for which he has gifted him. And if we refuse to follow God's will and God's plan, we are in essence denying his authority and lordship and, and also his wisdom and goodness. And these are, I'm being very direct, I understand that. Please don't be offended by it, but this is, this is Bible truth that we have to really think about. The Paul illustrates why this is so important by making the point that if the body had only one part, it couldn't be a body, right? Being a giant ear. That would be weird. 
Because God arranged the spiritual gifting of his body as he chose, there are two wrong attitudes that we must avoid. And this is, this is what I was getting to earlier. Number one, wrong thinking about ourselves. Look at verse number 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. Now, um, I want to, I took this out of my sermon notes, but I got to add it back in. I'm going to add something back in. What is fascinating is the foot is the very first body part that he mentioned. And you may not know this, but the foot in Eastern belief is the most defiled portion of the body. To show somebody the bottom of your foot was to show them complete dishonor. The rabbis had figured out that um, a shoe became unclean the moment it went from a cobbler's uh, tooling to the, the ground, as soon as it hit that, because the foot was going to be in it. As a matter of fact, you may not remember this, but remember in Baghdad when they took down Saddam Hussein's statue, they pulled it down. You know what the Iraqis did? They took their shoes off and beat it with their shoes. That's dishonor. So it's really fascinating to me that Paul takes the foot to be the first thing that he mentions and says, look, and, and the hand, by the way, the right hand is very honorable. The left hand is not so much, but it doesn't matter. The, he, what he's saying is they're all honorable in the eyes of God, right? And so the, some of the questions, the questions some of the Corinthians may be asking themselves has to do with inferiority. Well, I'm only a foot. Maybe I don't belong in the body at all. And that's why they're, they, that's what they were saying to themselves. I'm only a member. I'm not a small group leader. You know, I'm only a shut-in. I'm an elderly person. I can't go on mission trips. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I've heard this an over and over and over in my life. I'm a stay-at-home mom with no margin. And they feel inferior. They feel like they're placed off to the side. No, no, no. Stay-at-home moms have extremely important functions in the body of Christ, don't they? They do. They're teaching. They're training. They're ministering. Um, maybe I can't preach or teach the Bible or stand up in front and talk, so maybe I'm not very valuable. Maybe I don't belong. Maybe it'd be better for everyone if I went somewhere else. And that, the Apostle Paul says, is absolutely absurd. Absolutely absurd. Since they were unhappy with their gifts, they envied the gifts of others. You ever do that? I don't know if I envy, but, but sometimes I don't do this anymore because it's just an exercise of self-torment. There's been a few times I preached my sermon, then I went out and saw how Alistair Begg preached the same message. Oh, you talk about depressing. <laughs> I feel sorry for that guy. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Alistair, if you watch this video, I promise you, I, it's only a joke. And anyway, but envy is a sure sign of carnality. And it seems like in Corinth, everyone wanted a gift that someone else had. In, in, seeming, in seeming humility, they would say, well, I don't have a spiritual gift. I'm not really part of the church. Or my gift is second rate. It's unimportant. I have nothing to offer, so why participate? But that attitude in reality doesn't reflect humility. 
it actually reflects self-centeredness and selfishness as an affront to God. So here's why the kind of dejection and uh, dissatisfaction we sometimes battle is ultimately wrong. It's God who determines the nature and the range of the gifts. It's God who deploys them as he wills in the local church. And God is sovereign in the whole area of giftedness and the role of our body. And so it's not up to us, it's up to God. And that's a wonderful thing about it. And I'll go back to the parable of talents for just a minute. You may look at someone else and say, my gift is not as much as theirs of the same gift. And they've got all this responsibility. I've got this little bit. Be thankful. Remember the parable of the talents. One, three, five, one, five, ten, whatever you want to say. It doesn't matter. One, two, whatever number you want to choose. Um, Don't look at it that way. Just be thankful that you've only got a little area of responsibility. And so wrong attitude about ourselves, wrong thinking about ourselves. There's a second one, wrong thinking about others. That's the second attitude that the Apostle Paul was teaching about. Verses 21 to 26. And so if the problem in a previous passage has to do with how we are sometimes tempted to think of ourselves and engage in comparisons, the problem in 21 to 26 is how we sometimes are tempted to think about others. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are, notice the word, indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Some of them, some said of themselves, I'm not needed. While others were saying to others, we don't need you. That's what was going on. That's the exact attitude that pervades the church in the West. How? You ever heard this little term called rugged individualism? Right? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's long been a hallmark of American Christianity or Americanism. The, you know, the explorer who uh, supposedly relied on no one else, the pioneers who grew their own food, made their own clothes, soap. I have no interest in any of that. Made their own tools, implements. Um, of course, it seems today that in teaching that, in, that rugged individualism is lost, and now we're raising a generation of victims, but that's for another sermon. Individualism is, is appealing because, why is it appealing? Well, let me ask, why is individualism so appealing? It is so appealing because the natural man is inclined to do his own thing and to do it alone or at least do it without depending on others or obeying others. Even as Christians, we fall prey to the notion that because we're complete in Christ and He's our sufficiency, we do not need anyone else to live a faithful Christian life. I've literally had people tell me that, straight to my face. Even after pointing this stuff out, I, don't, I, I know what it says, I don't need other Christians. It's not true. It's not true. The idea completely contradicts Scripture. It was tempting um, in Corinth for those in the public eye, the gifted speakers, to think that they didn't need others. But what does Paul say about that in verse number 22? On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. 
Now, they are indispensable is this word. It's, they're indispensable for the health of the body, and they need special care. There are people in our congregation whose vital, indispensable ministries go largely unnoticed and sometimes even unsupported. I am amazed. Just about three weeks ago, I learned something about a ministry that somebody in this church is quietly doing that nobody else knows. One other person found out, and they were telling me about it. Nobody knows. I was just blown away. I thought, wow, how, how wonderful is this little ministry going on? Quietly, and nobody knows about it. And according to Scripture, the way I understand it, that person will probably get far more reward for that little ministry than somebody like me who stands up and, and preaches on Sunday mornings. Very possible. Very probable. There are people in our congregation whose vital indispensable ministries go largely unnoticed, even unsupported. And it could be anything from the, the older lady who mentors younger women or the, um, for lack of a better term, the emeritus elder who can't really make it to church anymore, but is a prayer warrior. I love that. This church is a praying church. I absolutely love that about this church. Um, uh, uh, interceding for so many. The, the family of very modest means opened its house on a regular basis for the care of college students. The quiet encouragers, the servant-hearted doers, the generous givers, the pastoral visitors, the disciple makers, and, and faithful helpers. These are all indispensable, is the word the, uh, the Bible uses, and it's so true. It is so true. Our culture privileges the extrovert, the upfront, big personality, and we need to practice extra care towards the vital, vital ministry of our brothers and sisters that largely go unseen. Paul puts it this way, we are to show greater honor to those. Isn't that wonderful? That's so wonderful. You know, you know how you can sum all this up? You can sum it up this way. No, I should have Christian on that slide. No Christian is unneeded. So Paul corrects a mistake in the same way he did the previous mistake. Isn't it interesting? The antidote for um, both heirs, I'm not needed or I don't need you, is the same. Look at verse number 23. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Get this. What did he just say? You may lack honor in this life for a quiet ministry. You take hours and hours of your time quietly ministering, people do not see, and God says here through the pen of Paul that God will bestow, will bestow greater honor. Praise be to God. Greater honor to the part that acted, that there be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. And God has put the church together this way, beloved. No Christian is unnecessary or unneeded. 
Has that, has that penetrated your heart? Do you need to hear that? Maybe tell yourself that sometime this week. No Christian is unnecessary or unneeded in the church of Jesus Christ. God's plan is that the members of the body of Christ exercise special care for one another, understanding that eyes and ears need hands and feet, and every part needs every other in order for the health and good functioning of the whole, so that in the church, notice verse 26, so that in the church, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I said earlier, you stub your toe in the middle of the night and you're hopping around in the darkness, it's not just your toe that hurts, is it? Your eyes are watering. You have acute back pain. That can be completely immobilizing, can it? It's not just an ache in your back. Pain in one part of the body is pain of the body, the whole body. And when you have a toothache, right? When one part suffers, the whole suffers. Conversely, when one part is honored, the whole body rejoices together. Think of it. If somebody pays you a compliment, you have a beautiful eye, or you have a dazzling smile, or um, you, you are such a blessing with your words, or whatever it is, I really thank you for what you just did. What does that do for you? It puts a bounce in your step, doesn't it? It's, it, the, the, um, we we uh, feel pleasure. We bask in the glow of the compliment. It shows. It, we react. We are honored. The whole body responds, and that's how it is to be in the church. The church of Jesus Christ is not like some country club that we happen to pray at. It's not just another organization that we uh, commit ourselves to. It is a supernatural institution. It is an organism inhabited by and permeated by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ himself. To belong to the church is to belong to the body of Christ. And that, dear believer, changes everything. So that you may, though you may struggle mightily with pride, thinking I don't need you, or insecurity, I'm not needed, there is wonderful hope for you in the church of Jesus Christ. Because it's a supernatural institution. And the Spirit of Christ, as it were, flows through the veins of the body, giving it life, cohesion, drawing every part together in unity to make us marvelously one. Here's my challenge. I run across a lot of people who say, A, my gift is so small, it's really not even needed. Or B, I don't even really know what my spiritual gift is. What do you like to do, brothers, in the church? What's your default? If everybody did what God had gifted them to do, this would be probably the healthiest body you could ever imagine. Let's use our gifts 
for the glory of God and for the health of this church. Lord, we thank you for the teaching on spiritual gifting. It's profound, Lord. It's, it's marvelous and wonderful. It's something that only you can do through us. I pray that this message was an encouragement to people. And I pray it, that it will encourage people to use their gifting However small they think it is, it's not. It's huge for the body of Christ. May you be glorified in all. In Christ's name, amen.